Well, good morning. It's nice to see you all here today. We've now reached the last of our studies in the life of Joseph from the book of Genesis. Last week, that us up to the end of Genesis chapter 44. And our task this morning is to deal with the final six chapters, chapters 45 to 50. I don't think I've ever spoken on six chapters at one go. So I'd say it'll probably take us to about half past two. Obviously, we don't have time to read all six chapters, so it might be useful if we give a brief summary of the contents. At the beginning of chapter 45, the story of Joseph reaches its climax. In verse 3, he reveals himself to his brothers. I am Joseph, he says. And we read that his brothers were not able to answer him because they were terrified at his presence. And once the brothers do recover their power of speech, and when they confirm that their father Jacob is still alive, Joseph instructs his brothers to hurry back to Canaan and bring Jacob and all his household down to Egypt. This invitation has the approval of Pharaoh, who provides donkeys and carts to enable Jacob and his family to make the journey to Egypt. The brothers then return to Canaan and break the news to Jacob that Joseph is still alive. Chapter 46 then sees Jacob and his family decamp to Egypt, and we are provided with a detailed list of the names of all those who made the journey. As the chapter comes to a close, Jacob and Joseph are reunited. At the beginning of chapter 47, some of Joseph's brothers and then Jacob are introduced to Pharaoh, and their settlement in that part of Egypt known as Goshen is confirmed. The remainder of chapter 47 describes the policies adopted by Joseph in dealing with the famine crisis in Egypt. In chapter 48, Jacob blesses Joseph's two sons. Chapter 49 is another chapter of blessing. This time, just before his death, Jacob blesses his own 12 sons. The chapter ends with the death of Jacob, and in chapter 50, his body is returned to Canaan for burial. The story concludes then with the death of Joseph at the age of 110, and with his embalmed body being placed in a coffin, awaiting the day when his remains would be returned to Canaan. So what are we to make of all this detail? Well, as we have been learning in this series, the story of Joseph is an illustration of the active presence of God in the course of human affairs, as seen in the experience of this one family. The late R.C. Sproul wrote a book on the subject entitled The Invisible Hand. And he wrote these words, God in his providence was involved in the whole life of Joseph. 
It was by his hand that Joseph was brought into Egypt. That did not exonerate the brothers from their wicked actions. But God worked through the evil machinations of men in order to accomplish his purpose. And in these six chapters, there are three individuals who stand out. Three individuals whose characters and whose actions demonstrate the involvement of God in his providence. These three individuals are Jacob, Judah, and of course, Joseph. So let's look at each life very briefly and see if we can draw out one lesson from each of these three lives. Turning first to Jacob. When we break into the story at the beginning of chapter 45, as Joseph is revealing his true identity to his brothers, Jacob is back home in Canaan. He is an old man now. He's 130 years old. He is coming near the end of his life, and he has time to reflect. In the course of his life, Jacob has lived up to the meaning of his name. He grasps the heel. He has been a supplanter, a deceiver. He has lived on his wits and been shady in his dealings. And yet, running alongside Jacob's meanness and cunning, there seems to have been a spiritual awareness, a capacity for connecting with the divine. During the course of Jacob's life, there are no less than seven instances when God either spoke directly to Jacob or Jacob encountered God's angels. And on two of those occasions at Peniel and at Bethel the second time, he was told that he would no longer be called Jacob, but that his name would be Israel. And here there is an interesting contrast with the life of Abraham. Up until the beginning of Genesis 17, Jacob's grandfather is referred to by his original name, Abram. Then in verse 5 of chapter 17, God says to him, no longer will you be called Abram. Your name will be Abraham. And from that point on, the name Abraham is used consistently in the narrative. But in Jacob's case, his original name continues to be used. And he is referred to as Israel relatively sparingly. It is as if Jacob was unable to rise to the level of God's grace. But whatever those experiences meant to Jacob, they were in the past, and his present is defined by sorrow and anxiety. His beloved Rachel had died giving birth to Benjamin. His favorite son, Joseph, dead these 22 years, apparently killed by a wild animal. And now the rest of his sons are in Egypt, and one of them, 
Simeon is being held hostage by this Egyptian overlord who sounds a nasty piece of work. This individual who had insisted on Benjamin going down to Egypt with his brothers. And how Jacob had fought against that idea. The thought of something happening to Benjamin, his last link with Rachel, was too much to bear. And you get some idea of his state of mind at the end of chapter 42. You have deprived me of my children. Joseph is no more, and Simeon is no more, and now you want to take Benjamin. Everything is against me. But he was forced to face up to the realities of the situation and had finally agreed to let Benjamin go. And now at the beginning of chapter 45, we see Jacob anxiously waiting for the return of his sons. It may quite possibly be that you can identify with Jacob. You can look back to earlier times, to good times, to spiritual high points, but these have been overtaken and eclipsed by subsequent events. Now the trials of life seem overwhelming. You have worries and anxieties, <clears throat> family problems, financial difficulties, health issues. You might well use the words of Jacob, everything is against me. And one lesson to be learned from this part of Jacob's life is that the bad times are as much a part of God's plan for our lives as the good times. I think of those well-known lines, the dark threads are as needful in the weaver's skillful hand as the threads of gold and silver in the pattern he has planned. And so it was in the case of Jacob. The brothers returned from Egypt. Thankfully, Simeon is among them. And even better, so too is Benjamin. And then, to top it all, they break the astonishing news. Joseph is still alive. In fact, he is ruler of all Egypt. And once Jacob gets over the initial shock of this, he prepares to make the journey to Canaan. My son Joseph is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. The darkness and the gloom have lifted. Those gold and silver threads in the tapestry of his life are becoming to, sh to shine. And now blessing begins to flow again in Jacob's experience. And at the beginning of chapter 46, he and his family arrive at Beersheba. Beersheba was the final settlement before entering the desert that lay between Canaan and Egypt. It was the point where he would leave the promised land of Canaan. That may have raised a doubt in Jacob's mind. 
He may have remembered an incident in the life of his father, Isaac. You read about it in Genesis 26. Then as now, it was a time of famine. The Lord appeared to Isaac saying, do not go down to Egypt. Stay in this land for a while and I will be with you and will bless you. Now at Beersheba, we read that Jacob offered sacrifices to the God of his father, Isaac. He brings the matter before his God and in a vision at night, he receives the assurance that he needs. That assurance has three strands. Firstly, do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for I will make you into a great nation there I will go down to Egypt with you. And secondly, and I will surely bring you back again. This is a confirmation of the promise made by God to Jacob at Bethel in chapter 28. We read those words in chapter 28. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. I am with you and will watch over you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land. Jacob will never see Canaan again. He will die in Egypt, but his body will be taken back to Canaan and buried alongside his grandparents, his parents, and his first wife, Leah. And there is a third strand to the assurance and Joseph's own hand will close your eyes. At the moment when Jacob takes his last breath, Joseph will be there. And when the light fades from Jacob's eyes, it will be Joseph, the son who had been dead to him for so long, who will perform that final intimate act and close his father's eyelids. But that day is 17 years away, and Jacob will spend those last 17 years witnessing the blessing bestowed on the people of the world by his offspring, namely Joseph. He will see the proliferation of his family and the beginnings of their growth into a great nation. And he will come to understand that all this is testimony to the controlling hand of God. The bad times are as much a part of God's plans for our lives as the good times. And now we turn to Judah. And the lesson I think we can draw from the life of Judah is that our past sins and failures do not prevent God from implementing his plan for our lives. Judah was the fourth son of Jacob's first wife, Leah. There seems to be something about Judah that made his brothers listen to him. He seemed to have a natural authority. And on that fateful day in chapter 37, it was Judah's suggestion that they do not kill Joseph, but that instead they should sell him to the Ishmaelites. 
Then you come to chapter 38. And when you have finished reading Genesis 38, you may well be left asking, what does this have to do with the story of Joseph? It's a rather lurid chapter. And in it, we are given some details about Judah's family. Judah's firstborn son was a man called Ur. And we read that because of the wickedness of Ur, the Lord put him to death. The name of Ur's widow was Tamar. It was then the responsibility of the second son, Onan, to provide his brother's widow with offspring to carry on the line of the firstborn son. Onan deliberately failed to carry out this duty. He in turn was put to death by the Lord. Tamar is obviously desperate to have a child and she devises a scheme to bring that about. It is traditionally understood that to promote fertility and prosperity in their flocks and fields, men would use the services of prostitutes attached to the local fertility cults. And so Tamar disguises herself as a shrine prostitute and waits for Judah to make his appearance. And here is another example of the deceit and the masquerade which features so prominently in the experience of Jacob and his family. Sure enough, unaware that she was his daughter-in-law, Judah goes to avail himself of her services. First, the price has to be agreed. Judah offers to send her a young goat, and until the animal can be delivered to Tamar, as a pledge, he gives her his seal, its cord, and his staff. About three months later, Judah is told, your daughter, or correctly, your daughter-in-law, Tamar is guilty of prostitution, and she is now pregnant. Judah is indignant and demands that she be brought out and burned to death. Then Tamar plays her trump card. I am pregnant by the man who owns these. And she adds, see if you recognize whose seal and cord and staff these are. And confronted with the evidence, Judah, of course, has to admit they are his. In time, Tamar gives birth to twin boys, Perez and Zerah. Now keep that story in your minds, if you will. We will return to it. But as you continue reading the story of Joseph's life, Judah makes several appearances in the narrative. When the brothers returned from their first trip to Egypt, it was Judah who persuaded Jacob to let Benjamin go with them on the return trip. And when Joseph's silver cup was discovered in Benjamin's sack, it was Judah who offered to take Benjamin's place as Joseph's slave. For more than 20 years, Judah had watched his father grieve over the loss of Joseph, a grief inflicted on the old man by the actions of Judah and his brothers. 
And Judah now ends his plea to Joseph at the end of chapter 44. How can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? No, do not let me see the misery that would come upon my father. Judah has changed. He has been on something of a personal journey. And when Jacob and his family arrive in Egypt, it is Judah who is sent ahead to Joseph to obtain directions to Goshen. It is Judah who is emerging as the leader among the brothers. And as the families of the brothers enlarge, and as they become the 12 tribes of Israel, the preeminence of Judah will be confirmed. Centuries later, when they are about to embark on the conquest of Canaan, in the opening verse of the book of Judges, we read these words. After the death of Joshua, the Israelites asked the Lord, who will be the first to go up and fight for us against the Canaanites? And the answer comes in verse 2. Judah is to go. I have given the land into their hands. And back in Genesis, in chapter 49, when Jacob blesses his sons, he will say this about Judah. Judah, your brothers will praise you. Your father's sons will bow down to you. Then there is this wonderful verse, verse 10 of chapter 49. The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he comes to whom it belongs, and the obedience of the nations is his. The precise meaning and the origin of those words is obscure. But the traditional view is that they apply to the Lord Jesus Christ. A little earlier, I asked you to keep the story of Judah and Tamar in mind. And now I go forward in time to the New Testament and the Gospel of Matthew. And there Matthew sets out the genealogy of the Lord Jesus carefully in three groups of 14 names. And who do we find in that first group? Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Who would have believed that out of the wreckage and the mess of Genesis 38, there would have been such an outcome. You might have thought that Judah and Tamar would have been disqualified from that blessing, but not so. That is one of the greatest truths of Scripture that many of the men and women used by God to implement his purposes slipped up. They made mistakes. They made errors of judgment. Bluntly, they sinned. And yet God still used them for his glory. Our past sins and failures do not prevent God from implementing his plan 
for our lives. And finally, we turn to Joseph, the central character of the story. The story of Joseph begins with his dreams, the dreams of the cupbearer and the chief baker and of Pharaoh also play their part. Each of those dreams comes true. These dreams seem to represent the revelation of God to particular individuals. And in the case of Joseph, the story demonstrates what can happen when an individual remains faithful to that revelation. Imagine Joseph waking up from his dreams and thinking, I've just dreamt about my brothers and my family bowing down to me. Well, that's really going to go down well with them, isn't it? I think I'll just keep this to myself. If Joseph had taken that approach, there would be no story of Joseph. God's plan would have had to be implemented in some other way. But Joseph was faithful to what God had revealed to him. And the lesson, I think, to be learned here is that our faithfulness to God's word is the best way for God to implement his plan for our lives. As he looks back over the events of his life, Joseph can now see why things turned out the way they did. And at the beginning of chapter 45, he tells his brothers in verse 5, <clears throat> it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. In verse 7, but God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. And in verse 8, so then it was not you who sent me here, but God. Joseph understands the purpose of his life. This was what Joseph was placed on earth to do. And that brings to mind Paul's word to the Ephesians. We are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. But of course, there is another aspect to the story of Joseph, something outside and beyond this story itself. As we have already seen in this series, Joseph is a prototype of one who was to come. C.H. Spurgeon wrote, there is scarcely any personal type in the Old Testament which is more clearly and fully a portrait of our Lord Jesus Christ than is the type of Joseph. You cannot read the story of Joseph without your thoughts being constantly directed to the life and ministry of the Lord Jesus. Joseph was loved by his father. And then you think of those words in Matthew's gospel. This is my son whom I love. Joseph was sent to his brethren. And you think of those words in John's gospel. 
He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Joseph's brothers hated him. The psalmist would later write, those who hate me without reason outnumber the hairs of my head. And the Lord applied those words to himself in John 15. Joseph was sold for 20 pieces or shekels of silver. The Lord Jesus was sold for 30 pieces of silver. Joseph became a servant in the house of Potiphar. In Paul's letter to the Philippians, the Lord Jesus is described as taking the form of a servant. Joseph was tempted by Potiphar's wife, but resisted. And at the beginning of his earthly ministry, in Matthew chapter 4, the Lord Jesus was tempted by the devil. Joseph was falsely accused and unjustly punished. And you hear the words of Pilate, I find no fault in this man. And yet he still delivered the Lord to be crucified. Joseph endured humiliation before his exaltation. And when we go back to that passage in Philippians, we see the same order. Humiliation before exaltation. He humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place. We are told that Joseph was 30 years of age when he entered the service of Pharaoh. It was at the age of 30 that the Lord began his earthly ministry. When Joseph revealed himself to his brothers, it was as if they were looking at someone who had returned from the dead. The parallel with the risen Lord Jesus is obvious. And when the famine began to bite, what did Pharaoh say to the people? Go to Joseph and do what he tells you. And I think of the wedding at Cana when the Lord performed his first miracle and the words of Mary to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Genesis 41, verse 56. Joseph opened the storehouses and all the countries came to Egypt to buy grain from Joseph because the famine was severe in all the world. A few years ago, David Earnshaw preached on this subject, on this very spot. And I always remember the title of his address, The Granaries of Grace. And I think of Paul's words to the Ephesians. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. Joseph forgave his brothers. And I think of those words from the cross, Father, forgive. They know not what they do. The story of Joseph begins with his dreams of his brother's sheaves bowing down before his sheaf. 
of the sun and moon and eleven stars bowing down to him. And the response of his brothers was, do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? During the course of the story, those same brothers either bowed down before him or threw themselves before him on no less than five occasions. The last of those occasions comes right at the end of the story in chapter 50. And throwing themselves down before him, the last recorded words of the brothers are, we are your slaves. And so the dreams of Joseph are fulfilled. Out of the many lessons that could be drawn from the story, we have highlighted just three. Our bad times, as well as our good times, are part of God's plan for our lives. Our past sins do not prevent God from implementing his plan for our lives. Our faithfulness to God's word is the best way for God to implement his plan for our lives. As we have followed this dramatic story with all its twists and turns, the words of Joseph to his brothers in chapter 50 provide a perfect summary. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. The New Testament counterpart to those words comes in Paul's letter to the Romans, verse 28 of chapter 8. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we give thanks for this time spent around your word. We thank you for the reverent attention given to it. We thank you for the timeless truths of the story of Joseph, how that it is up to date and applies to our lives. We thank you for the, the beginnings of your grand plan that we can see in this story. And so if we give you thanks for our time together, in Jesus' name.